Well, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you three of our beloved faculty and administrators um, and uh, for them to share today for us. Asbury Seminary's motto is the whole Bible for the whole world. And friends, we really believe that the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord is for all people across all time and all places. And so the stories that you hear today are just a sampling of some of our faculty and professors who are living out Asbury's motto through their ministry, in addition to all that they're doing here on our campus, teaching and leading. I just want to say that, um, you know, we talk about the whole world a lot, and I love as well the concept of the whole Bible in our motto, because it implies a holistic view of the gospel, not just of Jesus as savior in our minds, but as savior of our whole selves a full and renewed life. So you'll be hearing today about ministry and partnerships that are about relationship, friendship even, about holistic health, and about living out the mission of the kingdom of God in local contexts. Um, Dr. Dean will be sharing about Ukraine, Dr. Alvarez about Cuba, and Dr. Okasin, Colombia and Estonia. And these are, like I said, just a sampling of some of their travels. I had the privilege of traveling with Dr. Okasin to Kenya and Tanzania this past January. And I just wanna say that seeing firsthand the ministry of the people that Asbury is partnering with in East Africa was life-changing for me. And so I know that we are in for a treat today to hear these stories. We'll hear from each one of them and then close with a time of prayer, thanking God for the ways he is moving. Jesus, friends, is still at work in the world and we get to hear about some of the ways that that is happening in connection with our own community. Praise the Lord for that. So Dr. Okeson, I'll invite you forward. Well, one of the jobs that I feel incredibly blessed and honored to do is to help oversee the Office of Global Partnerships with Kelly Bixler. Kelly does a tremendous job with this and honestly, there is no institution that I know of in the world that has a robust a Office of Global Partnerships as Asbury Seminary. Let me read to you what this office does. Asbury Seminary's Office of Global Partnership nurtures healthy bilateral relationships of giving and receiving with like-minded institutions and organizations for the purpose of mutual learning, encouragement, and collaboration for the advancement of God's mission in the world. Through giving, we endeavor to help grow fruit on other people's trees, while in receiving, we open ourselves to the Spirit, growing us through the gifts and graces offered by our partners. Both of these are really important, and what you're hearing today is not just about Asbury going to other places but it's actually so important that we are nurtured by the global church and that we bring this back to our classrooms and to our communities. So there are three main goals in the Office of Global Partnerships, forming healthy partnerships, sending faculty to teach at global theological institutions and hosting visiting scholars. So let me very briefly talk about each one of them. The first is that we partner with institutions. So right now we have 16 partnerships. We have them in Europe, Africa, India, Asia, Australia, and are in dialogue with several others that we'll be signing uh, soon. We sign them with mission sending organizations. 
We send them with foundations that really focus upon bringing, visiting scholars, elite scholars from around the world here. And then we also form them with institutions. And we actually have a cohort from SIAX. And I don't know if Dr. Prabhu Singh is, I was looking for him, but he is one of the elite leaders of theological education, whether here or around the world. And so what we get to do is we get to form such powerful relationships with really solid, mature women and men who are studying in theological education and the SIAX cohort is just an example of this. We're just about to sign an MOU with Ukraine Evangelical Theological Seminary. And you'll hear a little bit more about that from Dr. Dean uh, in our time there. And we'll actually be hosting the president in a few weeks here on campus. We also send faculty around the world and that's what you'll hear. And uh, this was actually part of how I got recruited to come to Asbury. We were in East Africa at the time. And I was told that I get to actually come and be a part of a seminary that is still involved in global theological education, which is just an incredible blessing. And then we receive visiting scholars, and this is one of the things that you'll see with Kelly Bixler, and uh, we have regular cohorts. I think some of you were able to meet the Costa Rican scholars who were on campus just a few weeks ago, and we have, these are, these are the top thought leaders of theological education any place. And I don't know that our students fully appreciate how elite they actually are when they come and they spend three months or four months, they're writing books and they're, they're working on projects. So when you see them in the dining hall, I would encourage you to take this as a special opportunity to sit with them and to hear what they're writing on and get the opportunity to learn from them. Well, very briefly, I've actually been to 15 countries in the past year. In fact, um, I think people tend to like me the most when I'm on an international trip. I don't know what that <laughs> means uh, because even my colleagues keep asking me when my next trip is. Even my wife asks me when my next trip But I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. But I, very briefly, I just want to talk about two uh, Dr. Gober and Ibrol and I traveled to Colombia. We've signed a partnership with Fuspece or Biblical Seminary of Colombia, which again is a really elite seminary in Latin America. Right now we have a cohort of I think 32 students who are in our bilingual, who are in our Masters of Ministry and all of the residencies are taking place in Medellin. So this is, these are our students and they are being trained in partnership with FUSBESE. And we're actually, part of this MOU is to actually say, what would it look like for Asbury to create curriculum with a seminary in Medellin? That takes a partnership to a whole nother level when you're actually crafting curriculum together and co-teaching it. So that's been a really rich relationship and we've done that through our alum and board member, Dr. Ricardo Gomez. And then this past summer I was in Estonia and I'm on the board of the Baltic uh, Methodist Seminary and the Estonian, um, the country, the Methodists in the country have disaffiliated from the UM 
And so you could imagine the significance of, now what does this look like for a seminary in one of the most secular countries in the world that teaches in English, Estonian, as well as Russian, and what does this look like for them to lose all of these funding resources, and how can we position the seminary to grow in the future? And so these are the kinds of dialogues that we get a part to be a part of, and again, the whole goal is that we would be able to bring these back to the community ourselves. Good morning. So we were asked three questions about our trip, and I'm going to go through those three questions. Um, but to begin, let me say this. One of my prayers over the years has been, Father, if you say go, help me to go. And last fall, he said, go to Ukraine. Now, this is not something that I had ever imagined, Ukraine. It just wasn't on my list. And then I thought, Ukraine is at war. Do I really want to go to Ukraine? But God said, go. So I went. And this ministry experience happened because of many individuals who have hearts for this country and for its people, individuals who are moved to respond by casting the vision and making connections and um, providing financial support, carrying out all the details, and bathing the experience in prayer. And it was with their support that four of us, Dr. Okison and Dr. Tony Headley, who's retired from the seminary, and Dr. Marcus Killian from the university, and myself, that we made our way by plane to Krakow, Poland, then by van to Lviv, Ukraine, through sketchy back roads and conscientious border guards and occasional military presence. And I just have to add this, Dr. Okison was a little bit too excited about this adventure. <laughs> At a nice hotel in the heart of Lviv, we would meet with a, a group of about 45 people, students, staff, faculty of the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary. All of them also served in some kind of ministry role. They had become our friends. We were there to do trauma-informed ministry. In particular, we had four goals. The first goal was that we wanted to teach practical skills for helping um, their people do and do trauma-informed care in that help. We wanted to help them think theologically and psychologically about the trauma of war. And we wanted to help them develop good self-care practices because this ministry is hard. And we wanted to care for them by helping them process their own experiences of war, their own trauma. So how did God move on this trip? Let me start with some small things and then I'll talk about two big things. During the week that we were there, there was an anniversary and a birthday celebrated. We watched the community come around these folks to honor them and to love them in the midst of all the hardship and loss. And it was beautiful. Grace was seen within the community. During that week, I got sick with a cold virus and was unable to teach one day, and people cared for me. 
people prayed for me, even people here were praying for me. And surprisingly, the virus that had landed several people in bed for more than one day backed off enough so that I could go back to teaching and being with the people. Grace came through people's prayers. And perhaps the most difficult yet most moving part of our time in Ukraine was found in hearing people's stories of war and loss and giving them safety and space to grieve and heal. David Augsburg says that being listened to is so close, or I'm sorry, is so close to being loved that most people don't know the difference. We hope that our new friends felt loved as we listened to them and as they gifted us with their stories. They've become dear to us. Grace came through listening and being heard. In addition to these smaller evidences of God at work, there were larger ones too. We learned how the war had led the Ukrainian government to invite chaplains in to visit, to care for people in the military and hospitals and in schools for that country's first time in their entire history, right? God is raising up pastors and counselors and leaders and chaplains to care for his people. Grace is going to where the people are. In addition, at one point in the teaching, uh, a comment was made to this effect. We are seeing that our faith was not complex enough to handle war. Despite that, while some really are struggling, many seem to be growing in their trust of God even when they can't see him and they don't understand what he is doing. Grace is moving people to deeper faith. So what did I learn from this? Well, first about myself, and I will tell you, I am still processing our time in Ukraine. I don't have words to describe everything that I experienced, but I can share a few things with you. Um, my husband is a retired military chaplain. He served in Iraq, and even so, I have this crazy notion in the back of my mind that war is something that happens in the past, and if it happens today, it happens in a land far, far away with people very different than us. Yet in Ukraine, we were faced with a reality that did not fit these preconceptions that I had. We were in a country with people like us, with cities like ours, with war happening six hours away from us, and it was almost unreal. <laughs> the fact that drones were being shot at Lviv while we were there was surreal. And the middle of the night warnings over the intercom to go to the bomb shelter were just creepy. But perhaps, I think worst of all, was coming to understand that the men who were fighting for their country um, were also fighting for their homes and their families quite literally. Because if they lost, they could lose their families and they could lose their homes forever. This is not the same as what my husband and I experienced when he went to Iraq. Some people have asked me, um, how did you have the courage to go? And it wasn't about courage. Um, it was about obedience. God told me to go, so I went. Um, I never really thought twice about it, actually. I wasn't afraid, 
And it wasn't because I had some delusion that nothing could happen, but it was because I had confidence that if something did happen, God would be with me in it. And more difficult and more vulnerable to share with you, when I returned to the U.S., I actually felt deep anger, and I still do. Um, I, that question, how could human beings commit such violence against one another? And I think about that on the large scale, but then I think about our society, and I'm angry at our culture. Um, we use those words violence and trauma, and we use them to describe anything from something that truly is an atrocity to things that are just slight offenses. We don't get it. I don't think we understand. I think it reveals our privilege. And I'm afraid that by misusing and overusing those terms, we actually are causing harm to people by changing their perception of what they've experienced and making it worse for them. I'm angry. This leads me to what I've learned about the world or people in general. Now, these are gonna sound, you all are gonna go, well, duh. Okay, and the first one is not a new idea, but it feels somehow more tangible. Original sin brokenness is a real thing. The consequences of brokenness are significant. We all need desperately the transforming power of grace in our lives. And relate it to that, and this sounds silly to say in this space, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The gospel is good news to all people in all places, at all times. There is a ministry of presence that cannot occur in any other way than being with people in their space, in their lives. Our Ukrainian friends were so thankful that we would come to them, especially during times of war, to be with them and walk with them. And one of them actually said to us that when she thinks of war, she will see our faces. Well, when we think of war, we will see theirs. Presence matters. And finally, what did I learn about God? Well, we were fortunate to be able to spend quite a bit of time with the president of their seminary, Dr. Ivan Rushin, and he shared some of his struggle about um, not being able to see how God was working, how God was protecting the people of Ukraine. But he also shared how he's come to understand that maybe, just maybe, that the work of God is best seen in the work of the church as they serve as the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting world. In hearing his and other people's acts of service, their stories of the war, I'm not sure that I have ever seen a more beautiful example of that. Finally, as we were wrapping up the week of training, one woman stopped me in the hallway with a hug in Google Translate. And the message she read um, said, you are one that brings healing to the heart without knowing its pain. I am not that one, Christ is. And for some reason that I don't understand, he invites us again and again and again to participate in his ministry to a hurting world through the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of the Father. It is a sacred 
privilege. So friends, if God calls you to go, go. Be the hands and feet of Jesus and see what beautiful thing the Lord is doing. Uh, praise the Lord, saints. I said praise the Lord, saints. Um, a good thank you to both of my colleagues who have shared. My experience is that of traveling to Cuba, which I had the privilege to do so a few months ago, with our very own president, Dr. Tennant, uh, his lovely wife, Julie, uh, Jay, uh, Dr. Jay Moon, and myself. Um, we met there in Cuba for about eight days, communist country that invited us in and had the privilege of sitting down with the bishop of the Methodist Church in Cuba. We also had the privilege of sitting down with meeting and having conversations with the Methodist Theological Seminary there in Cuba. Um, we had the honor of visiting not only the established churches. There are churches that are pre-1950s that are legal, uh, we visited those as well, but we also had the privilege of visiting all of the house churches that are not recognized, any churches that are built, developed, constructed post-1950 are not recognized and therefore are not legal. They're known as house churches, and these are churches whereby people will buy properties and they will refit those properties to be serviced as worship spaces. Um, we had the opportunity to go to those spaces and talk to several people. We had the opportunity to meet with students and see the conditions of the Cuban people, both in regards to medicine, education, financial well-being, but also their spiritual well-being. And let me say this right off the bat. Cuba is in a state of, or the church in Cuba is in a constant state of revival. If you didn't know it, now you know it. The churches in Cuba are actually in revival consistently. There was not one place, one church, there wasn't one house church that we did not visit that was not bustling with people giving God glory and honor and praise. There was not one place where we visited where we did not see and literally sense the presence of God in a real, tangible way. The church in Cuba is actually, or the Methodist church in Cuba, is actually participating in a lot of medical and social initiatives where the government is not able um, or not willing to participate for the people, the church is actually picking up the slack. Matter of fact, in our conversations uh, with some of the church uh, planters, they are providing uh, things like medicine and food and clothing and different social services to their communities, whereas sometimes the government is unwilling or unable to do so. So, We've got to see the worst of the worst. We also got to see the best of the best. What did I learn? Two things. There were some similarities and there were some distinctions. 
The similarities impacted me in that I kept asking the question, who helped you to build this? And the answer 99% of the time was the same. We did it. How? God helped us. With what means? With whatever means we had. That similarity actually caused me to to think about our own country. Uh, As an urban church planter, I was talking about this this morning. As an urban church planter, I went over to Cuba and found that there were some similarities between the churches that had been planted there and some of the churches that had been planted in our urban cities. And I thought to myself, we must be careful that we don't look to win the world just, and just miss our backyard. Some similarities there that caused me to reflect on, I know we're good doing it everywhere, but are we missing our own backyard? The distinction was that it seemed as though revival was so so prevalent that I kept asking them, how did you get, how did you produce people walking for four hours just to get to a service? How did you, how did you get that? And yes, there's economic, social economic, and there's all kinds of issues that we can point to, but there was one point that was made very clear to me, and that is sacrifice. I'm doing some research on the theology of sacrifice and revival. And in every revival, it seems to me that there has been some type of theology of sacrifice. We've stayed praying longer. We've believed more. The service didn't end as, uh, when we wanted it to. There's always been an element of sacrifice. And in Cuba, that's what I found. Distinct from sometimes our postmodern and maybe some scholars calling it post-Christian attitudes where it's comfortable and we have a time frame. Sacrifice is really at the heart of what God requires of us. That and obedience. And I thought to myself, if we ever want to really experience revival like that, like what's happening in Cuba, We might have to rethink sacrifice. The Cuban people are resilient. We will be going back in January to bring our fellows program at the Center for Church Multiplication and even talk to the seminary about some of their professors and equipping them with some degrees back in January. So pray for us as we go back. Thank you for your time. I thought I would just highlight the fact, because I was listening to both of their stories, and it's so important for a theological institution, especially one that's in the West, that's kind of in a specific geo-political uh, space, to allow our theological lenses to be shaped by sisters and brothers around the world. And I know that that sounds obvious, but I was just listening to them, and I was hearing how they were reflecting theologically about being in wartime, being in a communist space. And I just wanted to lean into this point. You know, as somebody who spent my career before here coming, living in Africa, 
my theological lenses have so deeply and profoundly, even in ways that I can't express, been shaped by my African brothers and sisters. And what a, what a privilege that is to actually join together with the body of Christ all around the world and to allow us to see through their eyes, to read scripture through their lenses. And it's a privilege. And I just wanted to highlight that fact because we have opportunities for ourselves as a community traveling to other places as Emily did. And we also have an opportunity having all of these outstanding scholars coming to our campus. And how can our theological lenses be shaped by other people, listening to their stories, reflecting upon as they're reading scripture. And I thought it was really helpful to just highlight that as we listen to those stories. Thanks.